1: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 112 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every Monday. Now on today's episode, I'm joined by another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, legendary guitarist with one of the biggest rock bands to ever come out of America, 75 million records sold worldwide, Space Ace, the spaceman himself, KISS founding member and lead guitarist, Ace Fraley, or Paul as his real name is, and he took great delight in telling me that too. Now it was a bit of a late call this one, to be honest, I was given less than 24 hours notice, can you do such and such a time with Ace? Yeah, of course I can. He's got a new album out, but we did speak about a lot of other things too, namely Kiss, of course, and some of the wild stories from his time on tour. It's real sex, drugs, champagne, boats full of models and groupies, uh, Rush, uh, rock and roll, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a wide-ranging chat for sure quickly though a thank you to Kurt Town who was in touch this week a new listener from the US he says he says he found the show on Spotify and is working his way back through the catalogue he loved the interview with Pat Travers and sent me a picture of him and Pat and their wives together backstage after a show in Florida where Kurt's band opened for Pat very cool indeed also a hello to Mike Silvers and Auden Malik apologies if I've got that wrong who both emailed this week too Mike was also just saying hello as a fairly new listener while Auden loved last week's with JJ French he said I've been a huge fan of Twisted Sister since before they were mega stars. Me and my buddies used to watch them in clubs around the New Jersey area. Blew my mind when they hit it big on MTV. It was great to hear from JJ and especially those stories from the early days. Thanks for the great interview. My pleasure, Auden. It's always so nice to hear from you. Uh, I've said it many times before. Being a podcaster is kind of quite lonely, especially for a one-man podcaster. I don't have a producer or an editor or anything like that. I don't even have a live audience that can react. I basically do all this on my own, upload it, and that's it. So it's always really really heartening to receive feedback like that speaking of which a quick way that you can help as ever is by leaving a five-star review on the podcast app that you use spotify you can hit the five stars you can leave a comment on the episodes now as well and apple podcasts you can always leave reviews on there and there's podcast addict and good pods and many other places as well that you can do so it would be fantastic if you could and it would really help vrp rocks grow right then back to space ace now As I said, he has a new album coming out in about a month. I've had a sneak preview of the record and, well, it's got all the ace hallmarks to it. Big riffs, great tone, catchy hooks and choruses. It's called 10,000 Volts and you can check out the lead single, which is called 10,000 Volts, as that's available pretty much everywhere now. So of course we start the interview with that new album but Ace does like to wander when it comes to conversation so there's lots of other chat in there too about Kiss, Paul and Gene, Ace's solo record from 1978. He talks about making the song Rock Soldiers which is pretty cool. His crazy stories from on the road as a rock star overindulging on, well, everything and so much more. So I really do hope you enjoy this interview with the great Ace Frehley.
2: I'm very happy with the way the record turned out. You know, a lot of times I've recorded records where uh, sometimes, you know, you look at three or four songs on the album and you consider them not as good as some of the other ones, and you kind of consider them as filler. But I don't think there's any filler on this album. I think every song, you know, has merit to it, you know? Now, the brand new album, it's called
1: 10,000 Volts. It's out on February 23rd. We've got our first taste of the record with the release of the title track, the self titled track, 10,000 Volts. We'll get to that soon. But first of all, tell us about working with Steve Brown because I heard you say that you'd shied away from collaborations in the past, finding it easier to work alone. So, how did this one come about? How did you team up with Steve for this?
2: Well, my fiance Lara has known Steve since uh, she was in her early 20s. And I've known Steve. Only on a casual basis for years, and uh, you know, I I was try I tried co-writing with a couple of other friends of mine, my old guitar player uh, Derek, and uh, I was working with uh, Pepe Castro from the Blues Magoo's, which is uh, an old band which you may or may not have heard of, and uh, it was going slow. So finally, you know. Laura talked me into giving Steve a call. We got together and magic happened. I can't explain it. I can't actually verbalize it. All I can tell you is when we got together, sparks flew and we just kept rattling out these songs one after another. So how
1: did it work between you then? I mean, in terms of the ideas, did you both come up with them and sit down together and it all just kind of mixed together and the best stuff kind of came from that?
2: Well, I mean, the great thing about Steve is that he's been engineering Pro Tools for 30 years. So as far as I'm concerned, when I'm recording, the less people in the studio, the better. You know, too many chefs spoil the stew. So uh, for 90% of the record, it was just me and Steve in the studio alone. And we were bouncing ideas off each other. You know, he'd bring me a song idea. I'd write a bridge. I'd rewrite the lyrics. 75 or 80% of them, i put down a solo and a lead vocal and we'd have a song.
1: And I've heard you say that <laughs> some of the songs came together really quickly. In a week, you did two, three, four sometimes. So
2: was it as magical as that? Did it all happen so quickly? Well, I write lyrics very quickly. You know, I've spoken to several musicians that I know and they said, you know, they struggle with writing lyrics. I've never had a problem writing lyrics. And you know, I've never been to col. I never went to college. I never took any creative writing courses or poetry courses. And I don't know. It just comes natural to me. Sometimes I actually feel like the words are being beamed into my head by I don't know who aliens or whoever, (laughs) whatever works. But it's very. I mean, I can write a song if if the music is set. You know, I, I can, you know, I can write lyrics for a song in 45 minutes. Wow. Incredible stuff.
1: And not jumping too far ahead, but is it something you could see yourself doing again, working with Steve in the future?
2: Oh, yeah. We've already planned on working together on my next project, which is going to be Origins Volume 3. Uh-huh. And right now we'll been working on getting special guest stars to be showcased on that record to make it more special. But that, we're talking about, you know, mid to late 2025. A little while to go with that. So go back to 10,000 volts. And I mean, you've said it's your best
1: album since the, the solo record in 78. So many people talking about it. I think that the first video on YouTube is is nearing a million views as well for the official video, that is. So why do you think it all came together with, with you and Steve? And it, this one just worked so well.
2: I don't have an answer for you. All I can tell you is... Uh... I've written with a lot of different people. I've written with Paul Stanley. You know, I don't think I've ever written a song with Gene, but I've written with Paul. Uh, I rewrote some songs with Peter, uh, in the past and I've written with several other people. Chick, uh, Chip Rocklin wrote, we co-wrote rock soldiers. And I don't know if you're aware of the fact that his brother is John Voight, the actor, okay. and which makes him Angelina Jolie's uncle. <laughs> but I never had a chance to meet her. But uh, we wrote, a, and his biggest hit was uh, Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning. But, you know, he's still doing it. I haven't seen him in years, but you know, people that know him uh, told me that you know he's still writing and working and producing. And uh, ironically, less, uh, mon- last Monday, uh, Eddie Kramer, the guy who produced my uh, seventy-eight solo album, as well as the live one and two, and a couple of other records like Rock and Roll Over. He contacted me, and uh, out of the blue, I haven't spoken to Eddie in probably 10 years. And uh, it was a lot of, uh, you know, we reminisced and discussed this and that. People have been trying to get a hold of him because they want to interview him about my relationship with him over the years. And, uh, you know, people still cite my 78 solo album as being one of my you know, Greatest Achievements, plus, you know, the hit single, New York Groove was the biggest hit single that any of the KISS members have ever gotten uh, as a solo artist. So, I mean, I've learned so much from Eddie Kramer, you know, uh, his micing techniques, his production skills, you know, he taught me how to use compressors and limiters and mixing consoles, EQ, you know, he made me understand, you know, you, you, know, you walk into a recording studio and you see this gigantic board and it's very intimidating and if you don't know what the buttons do. You're like fucked. So he, what Eddie told me that really kind of made it seem manageable was that he said, "Ace, hey, so all you have to do is memorize one strip because all the other strips do exactly the same thing. They're just different tracks. So he explained to me what everything did on one strip. And once I got that, you know, I pretty much understood the way the console worked, except for, you know, some of the other faders, the master fader and, you know, certain sends, you know, auxiliary sends and so on and so forth. And then, you know, we started attacking the racks of outboard gear, you know, compressors, limiters, digital delays, but, you know, with Eddie in there, you know, when I worked with Eddie, they really didn't have great digital delays and uh, reverbs like they have today. So we used to strive to get natural ambience, you know, by miking amplifiers and drums close and miking them, you know, from a distance. And then we blend the sound together. You know, when we were recording my solo album in, uh, at the... Colgate Mansion in Sharon, Connecticut in 1978. We had Anton Figg set up in the middle of the foyer and there were staircases that went up and he had microphones on the second floor aiming down at the drums to pick up the ambience. You know, we kind of got that John Bonham sound in some cases. And uh, so, I mean, I, me and Eddie have, have been very, very close. And he wants me to fly to London. <laughs> This week, at the end of the week, and be in some movie that's being shot at Abbey Road Studio. I don't know if I can make it because my schedule is so filled up, but I'm going to try. Thanks. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And just touching on the 78
1: record, as we said, we've got a few questions from listeners. Um, we've got one from um, Ted Hogan that says uh, your solo record, obviously 78 was the, the biggest selling of the four. What do you remember of that time and, and when the idea was first floated to do the the solo records? And how did it feel knowing that yours was the best of, of the lot?
2: Well, I didn't know it was going to turn out the best. It just so happened that uh, me and Eddie and Anton put a lot of love into that record. Uh, I had just met Anton Figg at the beginning of that project. I auditioned him, and uh, I wasn't even sure who was going to play drums on the record. And a good friend of mine that I went to high school with called me up one day and said, you know, you should try out this drummer, Anton Figg. And then two days later, Eddie Kramer called me. He said, you know, you should listen to this drummer, Anton Figg, (laughs) So I thought it was kismet, you know? I thought, you know, some, you know, something's going on. Anyway, I got Anton to the studio and we hit it off right away. And we jammed for half an hour. And, and I just said to Anton, you know, you're the guy. And, you know, since that day, he's worked with me on, you know, dozens of records, not dozens, you know, probably, you know, eight or nine records.
1: Indeed, indeed. Now back to ten thousand volts then. I mean, um as we said it's coming out at the 12th... Yeah, Anton's playing on ten thousand volts. He is indeed, volts. yes, you've got him back involved in this one. Uh, it's out at the end of February. Um just touching on a couple of the tracks then, um one of them I really enjoyed was Blinded, Blinded by Science, Blinded by Fear, Zeros and Ones have Got Us by the Balls. Obviously it's a song about technology. So um give us a bit of the story behind that song.
2: Well, I remember calling Steve after listening to, after we were about halfway through the record and almost all the songs are about girls. And that's, that's a trap that most rock musicians fall into when they start writing a song. It usually ends up being about a chick, you know? So, uh, I, I, I had recently been reading some, uh, articles on artificial intelligence and, you know, A lot of uh, scientists and, you know, heads of CEOs of of corporations, you know, they're saying, you know, there's a good chance in five or 10 years if we don't regulate artificial intelligence, it might take us out. So because that was on my mind, I said to Steve, why don't we write a song about artificial intelligence? And even though I don't use the term in the song, if you listen to the lyrics, you get it. And in terms of AI
1: and, and all that sort of stuff, did you use it on this record or what's your thoughts on it in, in general?
2: Well, I kind of shy away from artificial intelligence. You know, I'm old school. You know, I still plug into old, you know, old Vox Marshall Fender amps. I put them in an ISO booth, you know, and I put the amp in uh in the control room. And uh yeah, you know, just like you know if you look over here oh,
1: it says yeah.
2: Marshall in the box <laughs> and uh you know the, the speakers are in the other room which is iso which is completely soundproof and uh and then we bring up this you know mic up the speakers bring the sound you know into the pr- all my uh preamps and then we get it into pro tools and that's how I record guitar solos and rhythm tracks. You know, acoustics tracks I'll just do in here with a microphone and an acoustic guitar. I usually do my vocals right over there. Okay. You can see the microphone. And we, me and Steve will both wear headphones and turn the speakers off so they don't bleed into the mic. There we go. Uh, In terms of the record itself,
1: as we said, February 23rd is when it's out. You can pre-order it now, get online and do the usual stuff. You can get various copies and things like that. But in terms of the release date itself, uh, Mac the Wolf was in touch and he said it's almost 50 years to the day since the release of the original KISS record, the debut KISS record. So was that um, planned or was it coincidence? And looking back now, what's
2: your feelings on that debut KISS record? Uh, I don't pay attention to dates very much but I am into numerology. <laughs> I have simian Palms. Do you know what I that have no is? no idea. <laughs> this is a trait that not that many people have. It's supposed to mean, uh, it can affect, it mean you have maybe a little higher intelligence or you're more of a special person. Uh, I've always felt I was special. You know, I have 163 IQ and uh, I used to, I never took a guitar lesson. Yeah, but what helped me with music was I grew up in a musical family. My mother and father played piano. My brother and sister played piano and acoustic guitar. And I was the youngest of three children. And uh, so I just kind of got it by osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms then, just to answer
1: Max's question, what's, what's your thoughts looking back 50 years on on that uh, debut Kiss record then?
2: Uh well, it's been a roller coaster ride, you know. I joined PISS in what, seventy-two, seventy-three, left in seven eighty-two, then I rejoined for the reunion tour in ninety-five, ninety-six, and then I quit again in uh around two thousand and one, two thousand two, and uh you know what the success of my solo album in 1978, you know, after I got back together with the guys, I kind of realized it was—I kind of saw the writing on the wall—that I realized that I was more creative away from Paul, Gene, and Peter than I was when I was around them. You know, we were great live, and four guys from four different backgrounds, but magic happened when we performed. You know, eventually we fell into those pitfalls and traps. You know, once he became famous, you know, I overindulged in drugs and alcohols. And so did Peter. For some reason, Paul and Gene, I don't think they ever did cocaine. But I remember, you know, when I was going to Studio 54, everybody did cocaine. (laughs) But... You know, it seems over the last 10, 15 years, you know, there's been a trend in Hollywood and in the music business to get sober. And I've been sober now 17 years, and it's made the world a difference for me. You know, I'm just able to concentrate more. I'm more creative. I'm healthier. You know, I dropped 45 pounds in the last year and a half. And uh, I feel great. You know, my, my fiance is also a personal trainer. Besides being a school teacher and a painter. So uh, she pretty much stopped teaching school and she's been concentrating on her paintings and uh, she helps me work out. You know, right now she's in the gym and uh, I'm home alone. The kids are in school and uh, I'm loving it. You know, this is kind of like my man cave.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love your man cave. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, Right, another question for you I've got from uh, Stingy Lizard. There's some interesting names that people use on YouTube anyway. Um, He says, thanks for the great show in Austin, Texas last summer. Where did you round up your
2: current band members from, all hella musicians? Uh, Gene invited me to go to Australia with him in 2018, and he had a support band, and... The support band ended up being becoming my band because Gene was using them to do the uh, to promote his vault experience. Remember when he was selling those safes? And uh, (laughs) so uh, he was also supposed to go to Japan. And I had 12 shows booked in Japan right after Australia, because most people like get get. You know, for us, Australia's on the other side of the world. So, you know, if you get to Australia, you go due north, uh, you hit Japan. So most artists usually go to Japan if they go to Australia. Anyway, Jin was supposed to perform in Australia and something happened and he went back to the States, he canceled but I asked him if he, I could borrow his band, and he said, "Sure, no problem," because he was probably gearing up for a new Kiss tour. And uh, after working with them in in Japan and Australia, I, once we got back to the states, I realized I wanted to keep them as my <laughs> live band, touring band. And uh, Gene had no problem with that, and I thanked him for it. And uh, you know, most of the guys are from Nashville. And uh, last year, I rehired my old drummer, Scott Coogan, who was with me from 2007 till about 2000. And uh, when did I let him go? We parted company about five years ago when I, when I hired Gene's band. But recently, uh, I decided to get Steve back because for a while he had relapsed and was drinking too much. And, you know, now that I'm sober, I don't allow alcohol in the dressing room or any drugs around me. So, uh, but once I found out Scotty, who was a dear friend of mine, got sober and he had two years under his belt, I decided to hire him back. So it's me, Scotty, and the two guys from uh, Nashville, and, Sounds great. Um, I've got a question here from Graham Walden, just talking about
1: um, support bands. He says, with Kiss, you had some amazing support bands tour with you, Blue Oyster Cult, Judas Priest, Sammy Hagar, to name but a few. Who were your favourite bands to tour with and were there any bands that you didn't get along with?
2: I get along with everybody 95% of the time. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a pretty easygoing guy, uh, you know, I'm very gregarious, you know, I, I'm friendly, I'm open. And, uh, you know, Paul and Gene, when they were on the road, they were like, uh, they never really hung out with anybody in the crew or, you know. We had a huge yeah. crew, you know, with all those stages and special effects. You know, But I was a regular kind of guy. I didn't care if you were... You know, driving a, a tractor trailer truck, or if you were tuning guitars. You know, I used to play poker with the truck drivers, and uh, usually win. You know, there's an old saying. You know, don't. It's probably not a good idea to play cards with a guy named Ace. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was what was going down then. And uh, today, you know, I, I don't really play poker that much anymore because I don't have the time. And uh, was that the question? <laughs> I, I always go. No, no, he
1: was just asking who who your favorite
2: bands to tour with. Oh, I love, I really enjoyed touring with Rush. Yeah. They be, we became really close. And after the shows, we used to hang out together in my room or in Peter's room, whoever had the bigger suite. And... uh Sometimes Alex Lifeson from Rush would put a a paper bag over his head and draw a face on it and smoke a joint out of it and tell jokes. Uh, Pete used to get up and he 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 invented this character called Doctor Rosenblum and he'd act like this really sick demented doctor and he put on glasses and put on a white shirt and. Act like a complete imbecile, you know, but we were drinking beer and smoking pot and we were rolling around on the floor laughing, you know. So, I mean, that's what it was all about. After the show, we unwind, you know, you want to unwind so you can go to sleep because when you get off the stage, you know, that adrenaline is still pumping. So you got to try to figure out ways you can relax and end up falling asleep. So that's what we did with Rush and... It was such a tragedy when Neil Peart passed away because we were close and we used to hang out after the shows as well. I mean, I remember opening up for Ozzy a couple of times, but that was, uh, you know what the biggest problem for us in the 70s was? Bands didn't want us to open for them. (laughs) Because we're a tough act to follow. We got all these bombs and amplifiers and you you, you name it, we got it. And nobody wanted to follow us. So uh, we had problems, you know. Luckily, you know, with the success of a live, the live album, that our first live record, we, we ended up headlining everywhere after that. So uh, it was just a matter of finding groups to open up for us. Bob Seger opened up for a tour for us. I don't know what he's doing these days, but uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, I was young. I was crazy. There was a lot of girls everywhere and uh, no shortage of that. (laughs) And of course, alcohol and drugs so yeah that was the day that was the rock stars going to australia in 1980 was like unbelievable we must we were met by you know thousands of kids at the airport you know it was kind of like the beatles coming to america same thing in japan you know when we landed in japan there was five thousand kids waiting for us in tokyo uh I never realized, you know, that uh, we had such an impact on other countries. And, you know, I, you know, finally, you know, towards the end of the 70s, I realized we were I was an international superstar and that stuck with me through my whole life. Do you have any crazy stories about your time, maybe in Australia or Japan? I remember
1: speaking to Jackie Fox from The Runaways, and she said that they were mobbed in Japan, and they ended up running through department stores and restaurant kitchens to get away from people. Do you do you have any memories like that? I'll tell
2: you a funny story. We were in Japan, and there was this famous toy store in Tokyo. And I forget the name of the store, but all I can tell you is, you know, we were there with our bodyguards. I bought... Uh, I always was into gadgets. I bought like radio controlled helicopters, uh, walkie talkies, anything that was, you know, I wanted to have everything. You know, I bought a whole set of Nikon cameras with all the different lenses, the telescopic lens, the micro lens, and it all fit into a neatly contained package uh, that you could carry it with. Uh, but while we were in this toy store, we got attacked by these Japanese girls all dressed up in Nazi uniforms. <laughs> so that was pretty nutty. And uh Australia was a joy. I mean, I love Australia. It had, you know, the people are beautiful, the people are fun, uh, fun loving people, easy to get along with. I mean, the promoter of the uh tour, he was a maniac. We ended up buying out all the Dom Pérignon champagne. And, uh, by the end of the, uh, 1980 Australian tour, they had to ship in more champagne from, uh, I don't know where they got it from, but we, we, drank, you know, he was ordering cases and cases of Dom Pérignon, and, uh, at that point in time, I was doing a lot of champagne and cocaine. And uh, it was just, uh, it was a roller coaster ride, you know. He, he kept, uh, we kept taking cruises in Sydney Harbor, you know, with our famous <laughs> yeah. bridges. And uh, he'd fill the boat up with models, fashion models and who knows, and groupies and whatever. And uh, I had one of the best times in my life. That first tour we did in Australia, it was really special. And I'll never forget it as long as I
1: live. I've got a question here from Barton Percival, um, who says, Hi Ace, do you remember the night you played at Cow Palace in San Francisco on the Love Gone Tour? August 16th, 1977. It was the night Elvis Presley passed away and you guys dedicated rock and roll all night to Elvis. Cheap Trick opened the show. Um, what's your memories of that and, and hearing
2: that Elvis had passed away? I was very saddened by losing the King because Elvis was the King. Uh, but if, if my memory serves me correctly that afternoon, I had, uh, I had like a cold and a sore throat. And I remember Bill O'Coin, my manager, uh, getting me an acupuncturist to come to my room and, uh, give me acupuncture. I'd never had it before. And uh, the guy was a little, uh, a little of a space cadet. And uh, he was putting all these needles in me. And then he attached them to electrodes and was, you know, pumping electricity into the needles. And then, and then he, he like opened up the drapes. He goes, there's too many negative ions in this room. We need some sunlight, you know, because I always kept it dark. And, uh, he started cracking my back and while he was doing that, he was a big guy. He had forgotten to take one of the needles out, you know, right here in my throat (laughs) and he was pushing the needle in while he was trying to crack my back and, you know, blood started coming down, you know, I mean, it wasn't anything major, but it was just nuts. You know, the fact that he left the needle in and, uh I went to, I remember the Cap House. Yeah, that was a crazy place because they used to have rodeos there and there was a lot of dirt and they'd cover it up, I think, for concerts. I'm I'm not exactly, I don't remember exactly what the floor was like, you know, when they had rock concerts, maybe they covered it up with plywood or something. But it was a fun place to play. The sound wasn't that great because it was a a huge place and you know the sound would kind of get lost and there'd be a lot of reflections and uh it wasn't acoustically one of the better places to play but it was a fun place to play and i remember selling it out and uh i remember doing that tribute for uh elvis indeed i've got another question here from jc holland
1: he says uh when you left kiss did you have any offers to join other bands that you turned down
2: no, I didn't have any other offers. My uh, my plans were to start my own band, and uh, that ended up being Fraley's Comet. And that first Fraley's Comet album went gold and uh, did very well. But, you know, after a couple of those records, you know, I, I was living in Manhattan. I had separated from my wife, and I was living on the 43rd floor of a high rise on the West side of Manhattan. And when I was in Florida, I had met this fashion model because we were staying at this hotel and these four fashion models were doing a fashion shoot by the pool. So, uh, I'm sitting there with Todd Howarth, you know, my other guitar player. And, uh, I said, we got to invite these tricks to the show. So we gave them tickets. All four of them ended up coming to the concert and. Uh, we had a great time. They came back to the hotel. I ended up with a beautiful blonde. She took me to her room and uh, it was magical. <laughs> and then ironically, I said to her, where do you live? She goes, I live on 67th Street in New York City. I go, where? She goes, I half a block from Central Park. I go, well, I live four blocks from Central Park on 67th Street. So in my mind, I said, this must be you know, serendipity. This, maybe I'm meant to be with this chick, even though she was only 18 years old and I was 37. <laughs> so, we we dated for a couple of weeks and then I just said to her, "Look, why don't you just move in with me?" And uh she moved in with me for about 9 months and unfortunately I would have to leave to go on tour and I trusted her in the apartment alone and uh but when I got back I heard some from friends I heard that she was dabbling with heroin. Oh, so she ended up, you know, getting involved with the wrong kind of people. So, you know, by the end of that year, I, I asked her, you know, I broke up with her and, and for a while she didn't know what to do. She was only 18, 19. So I put her up in a hotel for a couple of months. And then uh, eventually she ended up going back to Texas, where she was from, Austin, Texas. And she married her high school sweetheart and had a child. All worked out okay in the end, then. Um, you mentioned
1: Fraley's comment there. Um, I've got a question here from MCBK. He says, Rock Soldiers is one of my favorite songs. The line, if the devil wants to play his card game now, he's gonna have to play without an ace in his deck. He says, it's one of the best delivered lines in rock. Given that that song was about your own personal troubles, was it a tough song to write and work on?
2: That was, I like I said earlier, uh, in our conversation, I wrote that song with Chip Taylor and uh. Originally it was going to be a strictly uh, anti-drug song and uh the chorus was was originally we were just going to say just say no and uh I forget what the other lyrics were in the chorus but it's not, you know it was good but I thought we could do better with it and uh I'm sitting in the recording studio uh, at North Lake Studios in North White Plains, and I lived about an hour from there, and uh, I'm sitting in the studio, and Chip comes walking in, and I'm doing a guitar solo on uh, Rock Soldiers, and Chip starts going, Rock Soldiers come. Rock Soldiers go. So... He came up with that just on the spur of the moment. And honestly, the song wasn't called Rock Soldiers at the time, now that I think about it. It was called Just Say No. So uh, we worked up that chorus and it turned out great. And then we kind of rewrote the song a little to be less of a anti-drug song and more of a just a, a fan song.
1: Well, Ace, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. For, thank you so much for, for taking the time, and I recommend everyone go out there and get 10,000 volts. Pre-order it now. It comes out February 23rd. And just one last plug for it, Ace. Tell us why everyone should go out and, and order their copy now.
2: Uh, well, I think it's one of the best albums I ever did. I mean, I think it's probably as good as my solo album in 1978, which everybody seems to think is my, my best album to date. But I think... This new album is equally as good as my 1978 solo album, and I think there's more than one hit single on the album. So, if I was a Kiss fan or an Ace Frehley fan, I'd go out and buy it immediately when it's released on February 23rd, because you're in for a treat. Can't say it any better.
1: Ace, thank you so much for your time, and uh, best of luck for the future.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to the future. I'm doing a cruise. Monsters of Rock uh, the first week in March and a lot of good things are going to happen this year. There you go. In true Ace Fraley fashion, a
1: really wide ranging and honest interview there. I really hope you enjoyed that. Get in touch. Let me know what you thought of it. I'd love to hear from you. Email vintage rock at gmail.com or tweet me at VRP rocks on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days. And also, if you can check out the new record, 10,000 volts, it's available on February 23rd and you can pre-order it now. And as I always say, please support these guys while we still can. A big shout out to Mac from the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, which is also on the Pantheon Network, which is where VRP Rocks sits. A big shout out to Mac because he has pre-ordered his copy of the album. Anyway, that's it for me and this week's episode. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app so you get all the episodes, loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come over the next few weeks. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on that podcast app. Makes a really big difference. Check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well. The channel is going boom. Well over four million views now. It's crazy. Give us a like or follow or subscribe or whatever it is on all the social media channels. Just search for VRP Rocks. And a big thank you to everybody who listens and interacts each week. So, until next week's episode then, take care.